Hello everyone and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is episode 59, The Byzantine Golden Age, Basil II, Part 1. It's been many episodes since we left the main Greek narrative. When we last left our story, John Tsimiskis defeated the Rus at the siege of Dorostolon and sent Sviatoslav and his men packing. Only a few years before, he married his niece, Theophanu, to the Holy Roman Emperor, Otto II. And before his campaign into Bulgaria, he had led the Byzantine army deep into Syria, taking back land that hadn't been in the empire since the Arab conquests. We started Season 2 with Empress Irene, the very last member of the Isaurian dynasty. After going into the history of the Bulgarians, we started a mini-series in the history of modern Greece called the Byzantine Golden Age. Well, the dynasty that has ruled over the empire this entire time has been the Macedonian dynasty, which was started by Emperor Basil I. Even though there had been usurpers successfully seizing the throne on three separate occasions, the Macedonian dynasty always prevailed. Was the Byzantine Golden Age directly related to the Macedonian dynasty? It's very possible. After a year of writing for this show, we've come to the conclusion that everything is connected. If the Byzantine Golden Age coincides with the Macedonian dynasty, then they're probably related. There are several factors to take into account here. First is the climate. Ever since the great emperor Justinian I, the world had been getting colder. The world was dipping into a mini ice age. Crops were failing. Droughts affected grasslands in the Eurasian steppe. Nomads and tribal leaders came crashing into civilizations of the Mediterranean. This seems like a terrible time to call the Golden Age, and if we were transported back to that time, we would probably die of shock and horror within the first day. But for the people living in this era, they had just survived the apocalypse. Justinian's plague, the Great War, the Arab conquests, the darkest and coldest winters in thousands of years. But what truly made this the Byzantine Golden Age were a few good leaders who used all of their resources to take care of their people and reform the government so the common peasant didn't have to suffer as much. Every time a usurper seized the throne, the next emperor fed the poor or struck a deal that saved the most oppressed from destitution. But there is also the fact that the Abbasid Caliphate was disintegrating. The great enemy was no more. We are not historians, and do not pretend to have the answers. But we can say that it, it appears as though everything is connected, and there are no simple answers. This is also why we decided to do so many origin episodes. The number of different events happening all over the region, with so many close calls and flukes, all led 
these different players to converge together in one place at one time, which completely shook the entire world. John Simiskis was one of the best emperors from the Byzantine Golden Age. He was a brave conqueror who expanded and solidified the borders of the empire. Because he was a military emperor, he was also a very fair and honorable leader. The dignity and respect he gave to Sviatoslav proved that. But we must not forget that he was a usurper. Certainly the people of the empire saw his successes and may have forgiven him for usurping the previous emperor. Maybe it was because the last emperor was himself a usurper. But there was one man who never forgot. And that was Basil, the rightful heir to the Roman Empire. This is one of the greatest stories to tell from the late medieval period. Basil is the longest reigning Roman emperor of all time. His stories are of legend. The characters and players are the culmination of the entire struggles faced by the Macedonian dynasty. Every character we've talked about in season 2 will come back with an important role to play. And not to give out too many spoilers, but Basil II is the last great emperor of the Macedonian dynasty, and one of the last great emperors of the Roman Empire. Before we go into the story of Basil II, we must introduce another character, Basil Le Capinos. It's very easy to get confused here, as there are two Basils, both sons of former emperors. So to make this easier, we're going to explain exactly who Basil Le Capinos is in detail, as he has a very important role to play. Basil Le Capinos, born sometime between 915 and 925, was the son of Emperor Romanus I. Romanus was the son of an Armenian peasant who served in the Byzantine navy and worked his way up to the grand position of admiral. During this time, the emperor died, and his mistress was made empress, and their bastard son was made emperor. For a very religious empire, the whole thing was a shit show. The worst part for Romanus was the fact that Zoe, the new empress, was doing a very good job of ruling as regent. But Romanus didn't like that. And when he was called upon to attack the Bulgarians in a pincer move, he abandoned his army, betraying his oath to the empire and instead sailed to Constantinople where he seized power from Zoe. This was a coup, if there ever was. The only trouble was that Romanus was also religious. Romanus took the throne, but felt very bad about it. Plus, the kid he stole the throne from was a fat little doughy kid with breathing problems. Romanus had several children and spoiled every one of them. But he also had a bastard child with a mistress from the north. She was mostly likely a Slavic woman, and she definitely was a slave. This mistress bore the emperor Romanus' son, who was promptly named Basil, Basil Lacapinus. He was a bastard and could never take the throne. But that didn't mean he wasn't useful. Young Basil Lacapinus was neutered, castrated, and was probably being groomed for a position in the church. But something happened with Romanus I. 
His heart grew two sizes too big, and he felt very bad for stealing the throne from the rightful heir, Constantine VII. So Romanus gave the throne back to the Macedonian dynasty. But Basil Lacapanos, the son of the emperor, remained in the imperial court. It's possible he survived so many new emperors because no one saw him as a threat. He was a eunuch. What's important to note is that Basil Lacapanos was always there, learning, watching, paying attention. He was put in charge of governing the palace and even the capital city. He survived the reigns of his father, Romanus I, but also Constantine VII, Romanus II, Nicephorus, and John Simices, and even Basil II. This eunuch was so intertwined with the Byzantine court that he figured out how to manipulate it for his benefit. He knew how to make money, how to win over favors, and how to accumulate land and wealth. Returning to the emperor at hand, John Simiskis, the man who defeated Sviatoslav and reconquered eastern Anatolia and northern Syria. The empire was at its strongest since the Arab conquests. John Simiskis was proving to be one of the best emperors of the Roman Empire. But unfortunately, he was already old when he took office. His days were numbered. When John Simiskis returned from his campaign in Syria, he fell ill. He was rushed back to the capital, where many thought he'd die. While the emperor sat in his palace, he noticed something very odd. The son of the former emperor was insanely wealthy. Basile Capenos owned manors all over the region and was using his political connections to obtain more and more wealth. According to the Byzantine sources, John Simiskis was deeply troubled by the eunuch's wealth and planned to do something about it before John Simiskis could enact his move against the eunuch Basil Le Capinos, the emperor's condition worsened. On January 10th, 976 CE, Emperor John Simiskis breathed his last breath. Basil II, son of Romanus II, became the emperor. He was the rightful ruler of the empire. But that didn't mean he was guaranteed to keep that position. The president had already been set for generals to seize control of the throne and rule over the Macedonian dynasty. To anyone living at the time, there was no guarantee Basil was going to hang on to power. In fact, there were many who thought Basil would just sit there as a puppet emperor, as he did with Nicephorus Phocas and John Simiskis. But Basil was not a pushover. He had grown up in the court and spent his entire early life studying and preparing for this exact moment. He had a younger brother, Constantine, who was also in line to inherit the throne. Unlike many other brothers in the imperial legacy, Constantine and Basil worked together and had a very strong trust and bond. But there was something of interest between these two brothers. Basil was the oldest and rightful ruler, but he wasn't the strongest or bravest or most handsome. That right went to the younger brother, Constantine. This could be what led Basil to focus his attention on ruling the empire as efficiently as possible, trying to outshine his better-looking younger brother. When John Simiskis died and Basil became the senior emperor, 
His younger brother Constantine was crowned as junior emperor. There was one problem with Basil II taking power at such a young age, even with his brother fighting by his side. Basil II was only 18 years old when he assumed the position of senior emperor, and he was a little over his head. He was forced to turn to those around him who had an understanding of the inner workings of Constantinople. We are referring to Basil Lecapanus, the eunuch and son of the old emperor Romanus I. He also happened to be the uncle of Basil II. Basil Lecapanus knew exactly how to run everything in the empire. Some say that he was the one who was actually calling the shots during the first decade of Basil II's reign, and maybe that's true. The very first thing the two sons did when assuming power was to send a guard to the monastery to retrieve their mother. She had been living in isolation ever since John Simiskis banished her from the court. That's Zoe, right? Yeah, Zoe. We are very fortunate here because there was a lot written about him by his contemporaries. We have descriptions of his appearance, personality, likes and dislikes. Physically, he was described as shorter than average, stocky, bearded, blue-eyed, and when he laughed, it was loud and his belly would shake. He dressed very plain in a dark robe, with very little jewelry. Basil did not speak eloquently either. He has been described as ugly and dirty. Basil's personality may have been complex. He himself felt he was prudent, just, and devout. But others described him as severe, greedy, cruel, bigoted, coarse, and rude. Basil took no interest in pomp and ceremony. He did not like literary culture or the educated classes of people. While Basil may have lacked charm and social grace, he made up for in his powerful desire to expand the greatness of his empire. Here's a contemporary quote. No lonelier man ever occupied the Byzantine throne. It seems that Basil II trusted his eunuch uncle a lot. And I'm sure it went both ways. Basil Le Capinos had seen two generals in the east rise to the position of emperor. It was almost a pattern. The strongest generals served in the eastern frontiers. Nicephorus Phocas and John Simiskis were generals from the east. And when John Simiskis died at the rather young age of 51... There were generals in the East who just assumed it was their right to step up to the throne and don the purple. The precedent had been set. There was one general in particular who was a problem. That man was Bardas Scleros. He served under John Simiskis as a top general and even served in the same posting as the former emperor. Bardas just assumed it was his right to take over as emperor. But who was Bardas Scleros? He belonged to a great family who owned enormous estate in eastern Asia Minor. His mother was descended from Basil I's brother. Bardas Scleros was not only very wealthy, but had blood connections to the crown, and was also a talented general. He successfully defended Constantinople against the army of Sviatoslav 
and decisively won the Battle of Arcadiopolis, inflicting as many as 25,000 casualties while suffering only 25 of his own. Now, when I read these stats, I thought, how in the world could that have happened? So this is how it happened. General Scleros and his army held up behind the city walls of Arcadiopolis. The Rus and their allies kept challenging the Byzantines to come out and fight. But they wouldn't, because the Rus knew they outnumbered Scleros. They assumed that his army would be trembling with fear. So the Rus went about the countryside plundering, and then they started to drink and party a lot. At some time, while the Rus were camped and not paying attention to their defenses, Scleros attacked them with a small detachment, then feigned a retreat. While they were retreating down the road, the enemy followed behind and ran right through the trap. Scleros had over two-thirds of his army laying in an ambush on both sides of the road, hiding within the forest. When Scleros gave the signal, the soldiers burst from the forest and attacked the flanks and rear. The enemy panicked and fled in disorder. Scleros' forces pursued and took advantage of the rout. Basil Lecapinos saw this man as a threat and warned his nephew, the emperor. To deal with this imminent threat, Bardas Scleros was removed from the position of general in the east and was given the title of duke instead. This wasn't an insult, as duke was still one of the most powerful positions in the empire, but it removed Bardas Scleros as a direct threat against Basil. Basil Lecapinos told his emperor that this would not only prevent a rebellion in the east, but would also satisfy General Scleros and turn him into a loyal subject. Well, this did not work out as they had planned. Almost immediately, General Scleros declared himself emperor. There was only one problem. Basil was in the capital, and Scleros was in the eastern frontier. In order to actually take the throne, he was going to have to take the capital. That minor detail did not stop Scleros from raising an army of loyal soldiers and starting a revolt. Once Scleros rallied enough soldiers, most likely with the promise of gold and silver, and top positions in his army, they made a mad dash across Anatolia. It's hard to tell what Scleros' plan was. We are simple history podcasters, and we know how insane of an idea it was to charge the walls of Constantinople. So surely the soldiers of the Roman army knew just how insane this was too. But somehow, Scleros convinced them to ride to Constantinople. Maybe he told them the gates would be opened, and they would have little to no resistance. Maybe he told them Basil was a pushover and a puppet who would just accept Scleros as emperor. Scleros, who was over 60 years of age, had a son living within the city of Constantinople, and upon hearing the news that his father had revolted and declared himself emperor, he fled the capital to go join his father in Anatolia. What started as a small revolt quickly grew into an existential crisis. Scleros had made alliances with Armenians and Georgians and Muslims within Anatolia. 
and before long controlled all of Anatolium. He may not have the capital, but he controlled the largest chunk of land in the empire and the most richest part of the empire. The first battle fought between the usurper and the imperial army was probably fought by accident. Loyalist troops were stationed in Cappadocia, which is in central Anatolia, and were far larger than Sclerosis' forces. When the two armies met, Scleros mopped the floor with the imperial army, and just like that, with a single victory, Scleros assumed complete control of the east. Those who weren't on Scleros' side before had no choice but to join his cause, or risk becoming the next target of his rebel army. Because Scleros took his men from the eastern frontier, he automatically had the best troops in the Roman Empire. But there was one thing he did not have, and that was the imperial treasury. Basil Le Capinos, the eunuch, sent men out to the camps of Scleros and bribed his soldiers to come back to the imperial army. But this didn't work. Scleros' troops were loyal and would take no bribes. So the eunuch Basil Le Capinos sent another general to Anatolia to take on Scleros. Before the armies could engage in combat, the word made it to the leaders of both armies. A caravan of gold and silver was making its way across the land to Constantinople. It was the annual tribute for the emperor. As soon as both parties heard about this treasure, they bolted across the land to intercept it. This money could go a long way to fund the rebels, so it was crucial for both sides to get to that caravan first. And along the way, the two forces ran into each other and clashed, and Scleros' army was defeated. This was the first victory against the rebel Scleros. And to set an example to all the others who sided with the usurper, the Armenian soldiers taken prisoner were executed. This sent a clear message to those siding with Scleros, and many deserted his cause. The writing was on the wall. This rebellion would not last long without a clear, decisive victory against Basil's army. Scleros acted fast. He sought out the imperial forces and surprise attacked them, overran the army and driving them off. The battle was quick but decisive and put the momentum back in the rebels' hands. Seizing on the moment, Scleros marched his army to Nicaea and laid siege to the city. It didn't take long for the city to fall. The civil war was not going well for Basil II. The rebels had consolidated their forces in Asia Minor and were now ready to cross the Bosphorus and attack Constantinople from the European side. There was one advantage that Basil II had, which the rebel Sclerosis did not, and that was a sophisticated navy. Up until now, the rebels were a land force only while the imperial navy remained entirely loyal to the emperor. Bartoscleros would never succeed in usurping the throne if he couldn't cross the narrow straits to Constantinople. And those waters were constantly patrolled by flamethrower-equipped warships. Any attempt at crossing would result in a shower of fire and death. With imperial vessels sailing up and down the coast, the rebels were temporarily contained in Asia Minor. Asia Minor is Anatolia. 
Basil's strategy was to get the rebels away from the coast and draw them further into Anatolia. So they landed an army and marched them deep through Anatolia. The man chosen for this job was a general named Bardas Phocas. Because we are dealing with two men named Bardas, we will refer to him strictly as Phocas. And yes, this man is related to the famous Phocas family. The plan was to meet up with an army of loyalists and then set up a resistance force in Cappadocia. However, Bardas Gleros knew exactly where the Imperials had landed their troops. Once they discovered their trail, they pursued the Imperial army through Anatolia. What transpired was an army marching as fast as it could, while an even larger army chased them from the rear. At first, the rebels were following the tracks in the sand and dirt, but eventually they saw the enemy ahead. And then it became a mad chase, but eventually... Bartoskleros and his army caught up with the Imperials. The result was another bloodbath, with the rebels slaughtering the Imperials. Skleros was unstoppable. As easy as it is to think of the rebels as winning this war, the real plan still worked. The rebels were drawn away from the coast and drawn deeper into Anatolia. As winter approached, Phocas and his Byzantine soldiers were forced to leave their own country to rest. They marched east across Anatolia, through Armenia, and camped in the kingdom of Georgia. While they were camped out for the winter, the Byzantine general made an alliance with the Georgians and managed to acquire 12,000 new troops. This winter gave the soldiers time to rest, train, and plan their attack in spring. This situation also provided a unique opportunity to hit Bartoskleros hard and from the east. This alone was buying Basil II much-needed time to consolidate his power in Constantinople. After all of these events, Basil has only been the emperor for two years. But as the snow melted, the two armies prepared for a final showdown. On March 24th, 979 CE, the Byzantine army marched out of Georgia and re-entered Anatolia. They were well-rested, well-trained, and reinforced. Bardas Phokas, with the rested soldiers and his 12,000 Georgian warriors, descended upon the rebel Bardas Gleros. It must have been a shock for the rebel leader. Only a few months before, the imperial army was defeated and chased out of the land, And now they were returning in the earliest spring weeks, and they came back with 12,000 extra soldiers. The two forces crashed into each other, but it was an astounding victory for Phocas and the Imperial Army. The rebels were crushed, thousands were slaughtered, and the rebel leader, Bardas Gleros, fled on horseback. Him and several hundred devout followers rode east, They left the empire and crossed into the Abbasid Caliphate. It seems like the original plan was to regroup, gather more forces, and then come back and continue the fight against Basil II. But once the usurper left the empire, he was placed under arrest in the Caliphate and became irrelevant. Just like that, Basil II defeated his usurper and solidified his control over the empire. It was a close call, 
But with the help of his navy, the logistics of Basil Le Capinos, and the bravery of Bardas Focas, the Byzantine Empire held together. There was no way Basil II could have held on without the help of his most trusted advisors. And this also meant that the true hero of the Civil War was Bardas Focas, which would come back to haunt Basil II in the future. Basil II, by this time, had grown more comfortable on the throne and was starting to understand the inner workings of the empire. And as his confidence grew, he took a more hands-on approach of governing his empire, which meant that he was coming to odds with his uncle, the eunuch Basil Le Capinos. Regular meetings that were normally held by Basil Le Capinos were now being attended by Basil the Emperor, and he started to take charge. It was his right as emperor, but to Basil Le Capinos, it felt like his role was being challenged. For the time being, everything seemed to be okay, but trouble was brewing in the north. Bulgaria at this time was much larger than Bulgaria today and encompassed lands which we would call Serbia, Macedonia, Kosovo, and Romania. The Bulgars controlled almost the entire Balkan Peninsula except for the Attica, Boeotia, Euboea, and the Peloponnese. That being said, the previous Roman emperor, John Simiskis, went to war with the Bulgars and the Kievan Rus and annexed most of the Bulgarian Empire. The only problem was, most of the conquered Bulgarians didn't like being conquered. Even though the nobles of Bulgaria were more or less left in charge, there was resentment growing against the Byzantines, and one family in particular started to rally support for a new Bulgarian resurgence. The traditional land of the Bulgarians, what we would consider Bulgaria today, was completely controlled by the Byzantines, but the lands to the west in modern-day Serbia, were more or less left to govern themselves. The Bulgars had conquered that land from the Slavs, so when the Romans annexed Bulgaria, they left the West to govern itself. They never thought that a Bulgarian uprising could come from Serbia. One of the Bulgarian nobles in Western Bulgaria had four sons who were bent on breaking away from Constantinople and sought to rebuild Bulgaria. The youngest of the four brothers was a man who really led the charge, and his name was Samuel. These events in Bulgaria were all happening during the time of the civil war with Bardas Skleros, so Basil was a little busy and couldn't go straighten this out himself. He needed a plan to tie things over for the time being. As a new Bulgarian state was starting to flourish and lands out of Constantinople's reach, Basil II unleashed a secret weapon. The castrated sons of the last Tsar were released from Constantinople and sent back home. These were the sons and heirs to the last Bulgarian Tsar and would surely disrupt any trouble from growing in the West. The funny thing about this plan, as brilliant as it seems on paper, is that these sons were dressed in Greek clothes, so when they crossed into Bulgaria, they were mistaken for Greeks. And the guards attacked them, killing one of them at the border. Luckily, though, one of the sons was able to make it back to the Bulgarian capital, where he was proclaimed Tsar 
or Caesar. This whole charade was meant to challenge the uprising in western Bulgaria, which it did. Buying Basil II some time to solidify his empire. Even though there was a new Tsar in Bulgaria, he was nothing more than a puppet, a simple distraction conjured up from the Romans. The new Tsar's name was Roman, for Christ's sake. Not only that, but he was castrated. This was an empty show of force. The real power within the Bulgar Empire lay with Samuel. Even though Bulgaria is more of a nuisance at this moment in time, very soon, the Bulgars will become the most dominant threat to Byzantine security. If Basil II is the hero of this episode, then Samuel is his arch-nemesis. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome. <laughs>